Welcome to APQC's podcast, Innovation After Disruption. I am your host, Marisa Brown, Senior Principal Research Lead at APQC. Today joining us, we have Stephen Wunker and Charlotte Depra from New Markets Advisors. Their firm specializes on industry disruptions, and COVID, without a doubt, has been the biggest disruption in our lifetimes. Looking in-depth with their clients and other firms, New Markets Advisors has begun to assess what does this disruption mean in terms of how organizations are approaching challenges and projects differently now versus prior to COVID striking. And with that, I will turn it over to Stephen. Thank you so much, Marisa. It's great to be here. You know, prior to the pandemic, we had all sorts of companies that would come to us and say, we're not very innovative. Uh, you know, we, we don't have any innovation muscle. And then the pandemic hit and everybody was an innovator. And we all realized that we could do this. And so our feeling is that as we finally are nearing the end of this, we need to look forward and understand what changed. How did organizations pursue innovation in fundamentally different ways over the past year? And what does that mean about what we need to continue going forward? So at a very high level, I think we'd say that prior to the pandemic, a lot of organizations, particularly bigger organizations, but look, smaller ones too, uh, would commonly be very product focused when they uh, were, were focusing about innovation and very centered on an idea and not on the changing context and customer demands. Uh, they would typically uh, bury innovations inside very big programs that had uh, inflexibility about them uh, and that could often be divided out by functional silos. Whereas things totally changed in response to the pandemic because they had to change if companies were going to survive. They had to be fast. They had to adapt uh, in an ongoing way, not just once, but through phase after phase of the pandemic. And people had to be multidimensional in how they approached innovation because there wasn't time to bring out fundamentally new products. So you had to do what worked and you had to do it quickly. So those are the sorts of disciplines as we look forward, because innovation, the pace of innovation and disruption is not going to slow down. As we look forward past the pandemic, when we're going to have a more digitalized economy, uh, when there is probably going to be an economic boom with us, uh, and the pace of change will continue to challenge organizations and their innovation muscles, we need to look at those disciplines to figure out what changed and what do we need to keep. So we've got five of them for you. Uh, and my colleague Charlotte is going to walk you through the first handful and then uh, I'll talk with you about some more. Go ahead, Charlotte. Thank you, Stephen. Um, so to start with, uh, we, as, as Stephen was, was describing, the pandemic is a really fine example of multiple trends having collided to create this massive upheaval across the board. And that type of disruption is only gonna increase in frequency as the, the pace of change uh, accelerates. So organizations across the board need to be more better prepared for the future, more resilient in the face of that change. And we've seen that happen with the widespread adoption of something we call future casting, which is essentially a 
um, fancy term for describing a disciplined approach to understanding what your organization's future might look like. Um, so across industries, we've seen organizations use a combination of trends analysis, scenario planning, understanding which customer behaviors will stick after COVID, um, and really separating out the facts from the assumptions. None of this is new, of course, and we've seen this, we've seen terms like scenario planning for a while now, but they've become much more widespread, particularly in industries that are more foreign, perhaps, to those practices. So during the webinar, we'll be talking about um, education, for instance, being a newer sector to this practice. Uh, the example we wanted to spotlight here was the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, um, primarily because they've been more vocal about their use of scenario planning as early as in March 2020. Uh, but we've seen this practice across the board in education, whether it's schools, universities, districts using it to better prepare themselves for an uncertain future. And what's really fascinating about the example with the University of North Carolina is its ability to not only do scenario planning as an intellectual exercise, but actually link it to clear action items as they were navigating the pandemic. Um, so in their case, really understanding how to manage their university's finances based on the percent of students living on campus and the negative revenue impact. So in their case, each scenario was tied to clear action implications on budget cuts, investments, opportunities to aim for, uh, something that we've really found more sectors embrace um, during the pandemic uh, compared to prior. So Charlotte, at UNC, this clearly worked, um, but we've had plenty of clients that say, well, we did scenario planning and it wasn't very useful. What are some of the pitfalls in common scenario planning practices uh, that you know, an organization like UNC has avoided? Right. So scenario planning is, like a lot of other frameworks, much easier said than done. There are indeed a lot of challenges along the way. And the, the first very common challenge we've seen with our clients is this tendency to focus on more immediate trends rather than the long term and therefore missing out on key opportunities. Um, it's very easy to get sucked into those uh, immediate trends, not really thinking about more remote uh, shifts that might be impacting you in more uncertain ways and therefore deserve just as, just as much attention. Um, the other common pitfall that, that we've observed among our clients is failing to include diverse inputs at the beginning when it comes to precisely gathering that intelligence around the trends happening around you. Um, from the leadership to the sort of boots on the ground, you have to really include all sorts of perspectives to really gain a better understanding of your organization's context. And again, the tendency is a sort of, it's very easy to stay in your ivory tower and unnecessarily gather that intelligence from, uh, from across the board. And then finally, the other, the last pitfall among many others, but to sort of summarize here, the, the third pitfall we observe quite commonly among our clients is this um, tendency to lose strategic focus by thinking more in terms of projects or in terms of distinct opportunities rather than the overall portfolio. Um, as you do this sort of work, especially around scenario planning or future casting, you're going to be surfacing a wide range of opportunities, and it's quite easy to get lost in the weeds. There are so many threats and, and ideas to consider. And the, the key to really make this as productive as possible is making sure that you keep an eye on the bigger picture and see where each piece of the puzzle sort of falls in place. So making sure you keep that overall strategic focus and, and don't lose sight of it. 
So to move on to the second lesson that we drew from COVID-19, um, one of the things that we really saw becoming more widespread over time over this last year was learning how to innovate with a purpose. So innovation is a means to an end, and that end should be very clearly defined for innovation to be truly impactful. But to be honest, before COVID-19, organizations could really get by without really asking themselves those hard questions. Um, you know, questions such as, should we be aiming for cost cutting or raising prices or attracting a new type of customer? Or what amount of risk are we willing to take? Uh, what timeframes we want to set ourselves for this type of innovation? Those are all questions that are necessary to make innovation productive, but before you were faced with an urgent need to do so, you could honestly survive without tackling them head on. So what COVID-19 did was really force those organizations to adjust quickly if they wanted to survive in the immediate term. So suddenly those questions became pressing. You couldn't really avoid them if you wanted to just make it through the next few months. Um, so a lot of organizations who are wondering what should we be focusing our efforts on, the answer was often thinking about the business model or customer experience they wanted to offer as opposed to launching new products, simply because of the types of constraints that COVID-19 imposed on a lot of organizations. You just didn't have the luxury, the time, the resources to think about new products, new services. So at least that was a clear enough goal um, to focus your innovation efforts on. Now, the danger, of course, is that as the pandemic winds down, that type of innovation with a purpose trend uh, falls away as well. And that's, of course, something that we need to be uh, very careful about as uh, we get out of, of COVID-19. So one of the examples I like to think about when it comes to innovating with a purpose is uh, the topic of digital transformation in the arts. That, that's happened for several years, you know, as with all sorts of sectors, the arts and culture space is learning how to leverage technology in favor of its offering, of its audiences. Um, but it's also suffered from similar challenges around innovation as a whole, learning how to use technology as a means to an end, as a way to enhance the experience rather than as an end itself. And COVID-19 really helped clarify that role of technology inside the arts. So one of the examples we wanted to bring up here was looking at the example of uh, theater, of the Actors Fund, which is an organization in the U.S. that set out to create an immersive virtual performance of William Shakespeare's Macbeth. Um, this was an, an experience that was streamed for three nights uh, and basically marketed as a 3D audio soundscape designed to be listened to in the dark on headphones with a candle and Bloody Mary mix that was shipped to your home to enjoy during the show. It's a very immersive, very unique experience, um, and it really fulfilled the need of these organizations to not just use technology or innovate for the sake of it, but actually reinvent an experience that stands on its own and not just as a next best alternative to an in-person experience they no longer could offer during COVID-19. So making sure that you continue that more purposeful bent on innovation is key well after the pandemic. Yeah, the purpose here might be scaring the bejesus out of you. <laughs> I can only imagine. Um, you know, there are so many companies that come to us and they say, we want to be more innovative. And then yes, the super simple question, why? What is the strategic purpose? And a lot of them haven't really figured that out. Of course, you can innovate in so many directions. You know, Charlotte, we also um, encounter people who really want to start with being customer centric. And I mean, look, look, we've got a book titled Jobs to be Done, a Roadmap to Customer Centric Innovation. So it's great to be customer centric, 
But I wonder, do you think they should start there or do you start with something before that? Right. So the temptation is definitely to sort of find the answer in customer research. And, and that's true to some extent. You do want your ideas, your strategy to be in line with your with your customers' motivations, their needs, their insights. Um, but you can't just go out without any sort of vision to back it up. Um, as you do customer research, you'll be surfacing a wide range of ideas of opportunities that you could capture to better serve them. But you have to have a sense of what is the overall picture you're aiming for? What, what kinds of opportunities do we want to seize? What are clear measures of success, essentially? How can we pick out from the pack and decide what is a good idea versus a not so good idea? Um, so having a better sense of that vision of the overall um, sort of either brand image or overall type of organization you want to be will help you better sort of select or, or sort through those opportunities that you surface through that market research. Um, it also helps make sure that the opportunities you select overall work together to create that overall vision. And they're not just sort of isolated ideas that you pick out from the pack. Um, it, they have to work together to create a sort of more coherent uh, value proposition. When you look at the most innovative and successful companies out there, they often have more than one pillar sort of feeding into that value proposition. And that's what you really are able to achieve if you have a vision to begin with before setting out to find ideas to support it. So moving on to the third lesson we drew from COVID-19, um, one of the key things that COVID-19 taught us was that innovation doesn't and really shouldn't just be about the product. Uh, when people think about innovation, it's very tempting to think about um, you know, shiny new products being released in a very sort of Silicon Valley type of way, whether it's new software, new devices, sort of you know, that kind of, of sexy type of innovation, essentially. Um, but that's only a very small part of it. Um, you know, when we work with Deloitte's Doblin unit, for instance, uh, one of the frameworks we use is called 10 Types of Innovation. Some of you may have heard of it, and essentially it breaks down the innovation process into 10 uh, different categories. And when you look at it, um, product-focused innovation really only consists of two of those 10 types of innovation, more specifically product performance and product system, which is essentially products and services that complement your core offering. But the eight other types of innovation out there all have to do with areas that are adjacent to the product and are just as, if not more, impactful. Um, you could be innovating around your customer experience, whether it's the channels, the brand, the overall engagement you're having with your customers, or you could innovate around the configuration. So that means, you know, the profit model, the network, the structure. Um, and as it turns out, Innovating around those two extremes, whether it's business model on one hand or customer experience on the other, actually is associated with much greatly outsized financial returns. So there's a strong incentive to innovate beyond the product. And given the constraints of COVID-19, a lot of organizations were forced to think along those lines, much more multidimensionally. Uh, we didn't have the luxury of um, the time or the resources to just launch new products and services. We had to work with what we had and think more along the lines of how can I change my business model or my experience as it wraps around the products and services I currently have. We've seen this pan out in a variety of ways. Uh, in the restaurant industry, we've seen a lot of establishments turn into meal preparation services. Um, the arts and culture space is also a very good example uh, with a lot of museums, aquariums, botanical gardens, and a variety of other institutions basically turning their offering into activity kits to keep kids busy while the parents are working from home. Um, so 
a variety of, of changes that emanated from this sort of beyond the product type of innovation. Now, of course, the challenge, as with all these other uh, lessons here, is how do you keep that, how do you keep doing that well after the pandemic? How do you keep that going? Um, that sort of beyond the product mentality. And this is where certain tools like the 10 types of innovation can be useful, um, but there are also other frameworks that help you sort of proof those ideas as you continue to innovate beyond the product. Um, as Stephen mentioned earlier, one of the frameworks we happen to specialize in here at New Markets um, is Jobs to be Done, which is basically a framework that focuses on what are your customers trying to get done when they purchase your product or service? What are their deep motivations for using your product or service? And using that kind of framework, making sure that your ideas remain customer-centric is a good way of proofing your ideas as you innovate beyond the product to make sure that as you venture beyond your offering, you're not off the mark. You're still remaining true to your customer needs and it still has relevance uh, beyond, your, beyond your, your company. So one of the examples we found of sort of thinking in that beyond the product way was actually from a project we did in early 2020, just as the pandemic hit uh, with a global food ingredients company that was coming to us with um, the goal of creating, of designing its innovation strategy. Uh, one of the key objectives we had at the time was to learn how could we focus their innovation efforts on the manufacturing process and the end customer experience. So much so far beyond the food category itself, that was the key goal. And after a series of internal workshops, uh, we decided to help them establish a handful of centers of excellence, which you can sort of understand, sort of see as innovation labs, essentially, um, that would bring together different business units to work on a handful of key areas. And again, in the food ingredients business, each business unit represented a certain food category. So you could have coffee, nuts, dairy, all sorts of business units. And by doing that, by sort of having that cross-functional setup, we ensure that they were thinking constantly beyond their own food category along areas that were shared across these different units, whether it's packaging or new formulations of the same product, that sort of thing. So that, that's an example of thinking beyond the product in a more sort of productive way. You know, this doesn't have to be hard, right? There are questions that you can ask that really open up new avenues of possibility. We were working with a bank once. Uh, on a mortgage uh, innovation project. And uh, I asked the, the head of the business unit, so you know, what do you think are the, the jobs that people are trying to get done around getting a mortgage? And he said, well, it's to get a mortgage. And no, incorrect answer. Uh, so you know, rather than just taking that, I pushed a little bit and he said, well, yeah, people are trying to move homes and they were trying to figure out uh, where they should live and how much home they can afford and how quickly is my house going to be able to close? Yes. Okay. Those are the correct answers. And there is a lot of possibility around that. In addition to the mortgage, that's, that's cool, but you want to do a lot around it to really distinguish yourself. The uh, DBS is the largest bank in Singapore and they've created a whole service that's embedded in an app for home buyers where they can understand uh, trends and home values in a particular neighborhood. Uh, and you know, they can look at uh, you know, what might be going on in that neighborhood. They can do calculations about given their credit scores and their income, how much should they afford? Not what do they qualify for, but how much should they afford in, in, in a home? Uh, how straightforward is their, their mortgage going to be to close? They really looked holistically. And so, in the end, look, a 30-year mortgage can be a 30-year mortgage, 
but there's so much you can put around it to distinguish it just through continuing to ask those, those tough questions. So um, I'm gonna tell you about two more principles that, uh, that emerged from, from our work. So companies need to experiment and then scale those experiments quickly. Uh, and historically, firms are often really bad at that. If you ask people to rate their competencies on a variety of innovation dimensions, Experimentation is typically one of the worst in that sort of self-assessment that comes out. Uh, but a process of disciplined experimentation enables this agility and resilience uh, and rapid learning that enables you to thrive in an in a environment full of disruption. And this doesn't have to be something that's totally made up out of thin air, right? Scientists have been doing this for a couple centuries, and arguably one of the greatest scientific innovations ever was the scientific method. It doesn't have to stay in the lab, folks. It can come into a business. And there's a couple of different experiment types that you can consider. One is really targeted, like you might have learned in science class a long time ago about, okay, what are my key uncertainties? What are my big variables? What's the, uh, what are the, the dependent variables that result? And what do we think is sort of like set in firm assumptions, those independent variables? Uh, and then for those big uncertainties that we have, how can we test that in a very targeted sort of way? Um, and then there's another type of experiment that's a more integrated sort of enterprise where you're testing a bunch of things at once. And there you're really trying to learn, does this whole system stick together? Often that's very operational and it's, uh, keyed into finding out what you don't know you don't know, uh, which is often the case in business, right? At least in a science lab, you think you know a lot about the system that you're working in. In business, there's all sorts of surprises out there. So uh, think about both the targeted and the integrated experiments to, uh, to get you to a place. Frequently, those involve starting out a proposition in a foothold market. And you don't have to linger there forever, right? But find a place where it's easy to get started fast, and that will give you a lot of learnings. Um, look, Facebook was not the first social network. That was belonged to MySpace and Friendster. Uh, but Facebook started out in universities. In fact, for the first two years, you had to have a .edu email address in order to join Facebook. And universities gave it a very targeted environment that provided for extremely rapid uptake and experimentation with features so that when it was ready to go big, it could go big fast. You don't want to linger in the zombie state of not being fully alive nor dead, but sort of like blindly stumbling along without you know, a lot of purpose and direction, just consuming resources. Um, but... Uh, you need to be able to spring to life fairly quickly when you've uh, passed a few pivot points that you've defined and really determine what you need to learn in order to then go thrive. So one organization we work with a lot is Twitter. Um, and uh, one insight that Twitter had uh, in the past couple of years was that although the, the platform is designed for sort of spontaneous interaction, Many users have been inhibited about interacting because they uh, worry that tweets can be seen by anyone and they're out there. And even though you can delete a tweet, uh, they can be copied. And you know, people have seen many instances where tweets have been deleted but have lived on. 
And so Twitter decided to invent a new service called Fleets, which uh, disappeared after 24 hours. Uh, and they're sort of tailored as well to be a more video-friendly sort of environment. So rather than just going and launching it to 300 million plus users uh, that they get uh, on a, you know, a typical basis, they decided to go with a very rapid succession of experiments. So uh, last spring, they started out in Brazil. Uh, and, you know, the, Brazil was having a lot of uh, coronavirus issues. Uh, it was a highly dynamic environment, gave them very rapid learnings. Then they went to Italy, which was another uh, hotspot. Um, but, you know, they realized, okay, things are happening here, and it's going to give us very rapid learnings about this. Uh, and then they took it to India, totally different market, right? So there's purpose in this. Uh, and note, none of these markets was the United States, which was their biggest market, uh, and was not Japan, which is their second biggest market. Um, they aren't going to be experimenting on the main stage first. Uh, rather, they were really trying to have uh, some targeted, very rapid experimentation, find out uh, about a few variables that were really important to the success or failure of the enterprise. And now they've done the big global launch and have been scaling up. So it sounds like, you know, the, the key here is both speed and hopefully keeping costs low in the process, right? Particularly at a moment of crisis like the pandemic. Um, so beyond finding those foothold markets and starting there, um, do you have any other advice you could share on how to set up these quick, low-cost experiments, particularly in certain companies with a culture that perhaps doesn't feel at first glance to be sort of compatible with that type of setup? So we use a, a, a tool called the Uncertainty Matrix. And if you just Google uh, Forbes Uncertainty Matrix, you'll see some writings by us uh, about them. And that helps you untangle what you really know versus what you don't. Um, and including what you might not even be aware that you don't know. Uh, and through the four quadrants of the uncertainty matrix, you can really sort of parse out what are we really certain about, but maybe our tests that we should, uh, or you know, truths, sorry, quote, unquote, truths that you should uh, really probe on and validate versus things that you could find out only through interaction in a real life environment, those unknowns, unknowns. So by thinking about in each quadrant, what are the big assumptions that you might want to test? then you can start developing experiments and stage that as well, right? You probably don't want to go on to the, uh, the live stage first and find out all those unknowns, unknowns. That's expensive, it's time consuming, it's risky. Um, but you might want to start out with your, your known unknowns and take some of those factors off the table quickly. You know, some of these things can be done in an afternoon on a desktop. It doesn't require a whole lot of concept testing or live experimentation. Uh, but you develop a pretty thorough uh, compendium of what are your assumptions and plans against those. And then you can develop the experiments in an intentional sort of manner. So when you actually get to the main stage, your risk is way reduced. So in tandem with that point about learning in the live marketplace sometimes, one way that you learn not just about your market, but about your own innovation capabilities is through doing. Um, we have seen so many classroom-based instruction 
programs about innovation capabilities. And that's useful, right? But when it is not attached to actual learning by doing, getting people involved in a real live project, then it falls flat. It doesn't go anywhere. What you really need to do is put people out there so that they develop these muscles themselves. Um, and then they have that confidence to move ahead forward. In fact, they can move forward a lot more quickly than they, they previously thought. Um, and then you can also embed in that checkpoints to in sort of a structured way uh, about, okay, so we don't want to learn through doing forever. Uh, at some point, we do actually need to make some decisions about what we're going to stick with and, and keep and scale up. Uh, and you can do that in the overall structure of a project. So working with a bank in, um, in Asia once, uh, where we were having this seminar uh, about like innovation methods, and they were talking about this idea about selling life insurance in malls through people like stopping folks and you know, seeing, do people want uh, life insurance? And there were all these sorts of whiteboards, and uh, we sort of disaggregated the risks. And I was waiting and waiting, and finally I just had to say, okay, folks, the hotel that we're in is located directly above a shopping mall. How about we all go downstairs for an hour and see how this works? And that was outside the comfort zone, right? People were, like, not used to that. Um, but we went down there, and we talked to real-life customers, and they got so much out of that because they actually put themselves out there, interacted with the market, and they realized they can do this. Uh, so sometimes you just have to get out of the conference room uh, and not just learn the principles, but learn the applications. You build a muscle and then post-COVID that continues. So COVID has been a great exercise in learning through doing. Um, but now we've got to continue that by being out there in the marketplace repeatedly not just the high priesthood of innovators, but you know, people in the organization generally who can go to the marketplace and understand what's really working and what isn't. So it's marrying those competencies of uh, experimentation with you know, the broader innovation capability building. Uh, that really brings uh, innovation out of the zombie state, out of the whiteboard state, and into the market. Right. And in addition to that, that confidence and the, the skills that are required to doing to conducting that sort of innovation. Um, one of the things that that one of those competencies that we really encourage organizations to build across across the board, across their their set of employees is also knowing how to innovate in their own environment. So knowing how they interact with the different business units, basically understanding the governance behind their innovation efforts. Um, that's really key in order to make people feel comfortable uh, innovating in their own corporate uh, setting. Uh, that, that's especially true for large companies with you know certain bureaucratic culture, perhaps, um, or internal politics. You want people to feel like they're not overstepping boundaries or stepping on anyone's toes as they innovate and surface and evaluate new ideas. Um, so it's very important to make people feel confident in, in that the role they're playing is what is expected of them, essentially. That's so true. And, you know, it's not just about products and selling stuff, right? It could be about all sorts of internal processes. We did this, this program with a, a big global pharma company once, and um, it was with these, these high potential leaders. And uh, at the end, the, 
the module was to figure out what people's innovation plans were. And the person who was most aggressive, who wanted to push things immediately, was the general counsel. And people looked at him with just shock. Like, what? You're, you're the innovation terminator. <laughs> we don't think you're like any innovations. And he said, look, that is exactly the point, right? We're here to keep things in compliant and legal, but that doesn't mean we're anti-innovation. We need to figure out how to work with the rest of this organization and uh, you know, make innovation really come alive. So you know, for heaven's sake, if the general counsel can do it, then just about anybody in an organization can learn how to bring innovation to their function too. Um, so Charlotte, how, how should companies get started? What, what should they do? Right. So there are a lot of um, a lot of lessons and takeaways we've we've talked through so far, and you can start creating momentum by at least starting in in three key areas. The first part is starting your future casting now. Um, it's very easy to get lost in the weeds when it comes to trying to predict the future. But first of all, you have to remember you're not predicting the future. You're making a series of judgment calls, and those judgment calls will change over time. And more importantly, you don't have to sort of it doesn't have to be an, an endless exercise in order to to do that you can take two three months to basically look at the most relevant trends out there pick out the most uncertain and impactful ones when it comes to your organization generate potential futures in a rigorous way and link those futures to key threats and opportunities um, for your organization and then working backwards from there you can link those to clear steps you can take now to address those threats and opportunities in the future and the second area you can start working on is building your innovation strategy. Um, like we said before, a lot of organizations realize they could innovate with a purpose and not simply for the sake of innovating. And that's key in order to keep your innovation efforts productive in the long term. Um, so that means knowing what types of innovation to prioritize, how offensive versus defensive you want to be. Um, what investments are you willing to make? The expected failure and redirection rates, the financial goals and the time frame for realizing these goals. All of that needs to be very clear so that your innovation efforts are framed within a clear set of guidelines and people know um, what they're supposed to be working on. And then in tandem with that, the third area you want to really be clear about as you move forward is determining your success metrics. How are you going to be evaluating those different opportunities that you surface over time? Um, you know, as we said earlier, you don't want to end up with a ton of zombie projects that are sort of there, but no one really sort of is doing anything about them and they just keep on sucking in resources for no good reason. Um, you want to be sort of merciless about what projects you want to move forward or not. And that's the kind of thing that takes also some adjustment over time as trends change and you adjust accordingly. Um, so being very clear about those measures of, of success and those, those criteria from the get-go will help both make your employees uh, more confident in what they're doing um, and make your overall innovation process more effective in the long term. So, um, look, 2020 was a tough year for, uh, for all of us in all of our different ways. Um, but what we can take from it is learning. Um, we all learned personally, as well as I think professionally, how to do things differently. Uh, so what we've tried to do here is distill some very concrete learnings that aren't just stuck in the time of the pandemic, but they can live on and on in organizations. Uh, and if we get one thing from that pandemic that's really positive, it's confidence in ourselves to handle tough challenges and that we can act differently uh, and be flexible and even thrive in, uh, in new environments. 
So we hope with uh, at least innovation that organizations can do that. Marisa, thanks, thanks so much for having Charlotte and I on the show. Thank you so much, Stephen and Charlotte. And everyone, you can find Stephen and Charlotte at newmarketsadvisors.com. And note that that is markets with an S, newmarketsadvisors.com, as well as on LinkedIn and Twitter. Thank you all very much for listening to this APQC podcast. Did you like what you heard? If so, then please subscribe to our podcast and visit apqc.org to learn more. Thank you and have a great rest of your day.